0: Sir, so the reading today is from Acts 20, verse 17 to 24. But when we landed up Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus, asking them to come and meet him. When they arrived, he declared, you know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God, and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God." Let's just pray, shall we? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you that you are with us now by your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would take your word and you would do a mighty work in our hearts and in our minds now. We invite you. Would you change us? Would you challenge us? Would you move us on? And Lord, we pray anything of me would be quickly forgotten, but everything of you, Lord, would be enlarged, would be magnified. Have your way with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, uh, I understand we've been reading uh, the book of Acts from uh, chapters uh, 13 to 24. And if you haven't been able to read those uh, chapters, then don't worry, but uh, they're basically about the adventures of one of Jesus' followers called Paul or Saul. And I'm going to, going to share with you two things that really struck me from reading those chapters this week. Firstly, I'd like you to envision a, a small town. Now, you, you know I come from Chippenham and perhaps some of you have visited Chippenham in the past. It's a, a town of about 40,000 people it's big enough that it has uh, all the shops that you really need but it doesn't have all of the shops that you perhaps you would really really want at least that's what my wife says um so one day you're you're walking through the town center and you notice a commotion up ahead and you saunter along intrigued to know what's going on and then you you see in the middle of the crowds Uh, a slightly balding guy, maybe mid-30s, 40s, something like that. Uh, Before you know it, the crowd has turned ugly and they are throwing things at this man. And they're bouncing off and you can see the blood. There's there's a pile of builder's rubble to one side and people are are throwing bricks at this guy. And you're just so surprised. This is England. Uh, You just stand there. Um, and in an instant it's over as soon as the the mobs uh, thrown throwing so- stones at him uh, one person shouts out that's it he's done for and the crowd instantly goes quiet and they drop their stones and they move off they they go away they slip away and in a moment you can see there's just two or three people left crowded around this man he's he's on the floor and he's bloody and you run up to them and say, what on earth's going on? Is, is this person all right? And just as you're saying, where are the police? You realize that actually he's, he's groaning and his eyes have now uh, opened again. I think we would all be rightly shocked to see that. Let me read to you Acts 14, 19 to 23. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. What struck me about this passage was the way it was written so matter-of-factly. The Jews won the crowd over. They stoned Paul. They left him for dead. Paul got up and went back into the city. Wow, what's going on there? It's possible that Paul actually died and God did a miracle and brought him back to life. And again, perhaps Paul was knocked unconscious, left for dead, but then after a few minutes, he came back to consciousness. Either way, Paul was left for dead. The mob tried to kill him, He'd done nothing wrong at all. Where were the city authorities? Where were the police? Where were the courts? Where was due process? It's shocking. It's awful. What happened to Paul was terribly wrong. It's amazing. Paul doesn't scream, breach of human rights here. He doesn't demand an apology. He simply gets up and walks back into the city. It's remarkable. It reminds me of another incident from uh, the, the chapters we read this week. Chapter 16, we find Paul and Silas again in jail, this time in Philippi. They'd just been beaten with rods. If you can imagine what that must look like. Black and bru- bruised, black and blue, blood all over. Uh, verse 23 says he had been severely flogged. Nasty. So what do Paul and Silas get up to next? I won't read it, but I'm sure you probably know. They start a praise session, of course. They're in jail at midnight, having been severely flogged. So what is going on with this guy? Maybe he's on drugs. Is, is that what's the case? Or maybe because of the many beatings that Paul has, has received, he's gone a bit doolally you know, hit in the head a bit too many times. In order to answer the question, we need a bit of help. You see, Acts is very good for giving us information, showing us what's happened. It's full of verbs and an action. It's, it's really exciting to read. I hope you, you're enjoying reading it. But sometimes it doesn't give us very much insight into the, the inner working. You know, what was... Paul thinking and and feeling for that we need to go to Paul's letters and it's in as we read Paul's first letter to Timothy that we come to see that no Paul wasn't on drugs it's okay so um, 1 Timothy 1 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus you see Fear can't make a prisoner sing. Hate can't bring life and joy. But that's exactly what Paul had. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of that jail, Paul had joy, he had hope. But it wasn't always like that for Paul. A few years earlier, Paul was a very different person. He was the one doing the throwing of the stones and the beating of the Christians. Acts 8.3 says, but Paul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Acts 9.1 says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples not a nice person. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13, and then 15 and 16, even though I was once a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy, because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. In 1 Timothy, Paul's looking back Thirty years to before he started following Jesus Paul had been a zealous Jew he was trying his utmost to destroy the new Christians the followers of the way as they called them murder hate they were constantly on his mind and he thought he was serving God instead God grabbed him he opened his mind he showed him that actually his confidence in the flesh, his, his confidence in all the things that he thought made him a good person, like menstrual rags, his trust in his, his religious learning and his knowledge, it was like rubbish. Chapter 20 of Acts, which we read this week, we do get a bit of a glimpse of Paul's inner life. He's just completed his third missionary journey. He's traveled all over the place. But now he's being compelled by the Holy Spirit to go towards Jerusalem. He obeys the Lord. It's remarkable because he knows that prison and hardship await him there. Just stop for a moment. What's that like? You know the Lord's telling you, go to such and such a place. You know you're going to be beaten. You know you're going to be thrown in jail. You know it's going to be hard, and yet you obey. On the way, Paul stops in Ephesus. He spent time in the past there. He's got really good friends that love him. He loves them, and he encourages them. Of course he would. He spends some time with them. But we we read there a summary of his of his ministry. And the what of what he did, we have in verse 21, Paul says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus. So that's the what, the why, verse 24. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. A few years later, Paul's in jail again and he writes in Philippians 3, 8-9, What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost All things I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus that's the first thing I want to talk about today the first thing that really struck me as we we saw through Paul's life the gospel it's amazing Paul lived it out before our very lives, as we we read this week. The truth that God loves us so much that he grabs us out of the mire. Exactly what happened with Paul. Whilst we were the worst of sinners, he saves us, he brings us into friendship and sonship, daughtership with him. Now you might be thinking, Tim, You know, I've never killed anyone. Perhaps that's true, but you know your own heart. I'm sure you're like me, and when I'm truly honest, I know my own thoughts, let alone my actions, and they are reprehensible, they're awful. And next to our glorious Father, our our wonderful, totally pure father our best best efforts of righteousness are just awful soiled rags you know paul he was probably the best religious keeper ever he was so zealous he even murdered christians but it wasn't enough paul really really tried no one could have worked harder to keep the religious rules than paul but it wasn't enough. It could never be enough. Trying to earn his way to God was like having this enormous, huge weight on his shoulders and he could never get rid of it. Paul's soul was seared with the dirt of sin and there was nothing he could do about it. I reckon he was just utterly tired of it all. And then Jesus met him on the road and paul suddenly realized it's not about me it's not about my striving anymore the only way is if god comes and washes me clean so no wonder paul is singing in the stocks no wonder paul is content to be beaten to be thrown into prison because paul now knows what freedom is his soul it's finally free. God Himself has given Paul a new heart. He's forgiven and accepted by God. What joy! Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Do you know Jesus? The amazing good news that turned Paul's life upside down is freely available for us too. It's amazing. If you've never accepted the free gift of forgiveness and life, today could be your freedom day. We simply need to trust entirely in Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. But I know the majority of us here today have already trusted in Jesus and praise God. But it's the same question we need to keep asking us as well. It's so easy to slip into trusting in anything and everything else. We have comfortable Western lives. Are we actually trusting in the Lord? Have we forgotten the gospel? When we read of Paul who says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Are we shocked? Or are we just so numb to it all? Do we want to say to Paul, calm down Paul really let's get things into perspective let's have a bit more balance in our lives we don't need to be entirely focused on God do we I think Paul would turn around to us and say Jesus is everything to me if balance means a bit of of me and along with a bit of Jesus then balance is evil balance is demonic true balance true health is giving everything to God do we get the gospel do we understand there is no other hope for our world there is no other hope in our world it's not education it's not politics It's not better mental health it's not more fulfilling careers not even peace in Ukraine or sorting the environment out those things are good next to knowing Jesus they are like soiled rags I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord we must keep reminding ourselves of that truth brothers and sisters crucially we must continually remind ourselves that our culture here in the UK in England the world is dead against the message of Jesus it's not that the world is generally ambivalent to the gospel no the gospel is seen as utterly foolish they think the gospel is completely stupid you christians here you meet on sundays you are brain dead to believe in god i've heard that i don't know if you have as those that belong to jesus we must accept that they are looking down on us and they always will but that's okay Jesus warned us, you will be hated by all nations because of me. That's Matthew 24, 9. Why do we worry about what our culture says? Why do we continue trying to accommodate what the world wants? Now, of course, we must be ready to to give a hope of, in a culturally appropriate way, the hope that we have. But only from the perspective that the gospel is right. The reality is, we are people swimming against the tide, against the current. Let's open our eyes. Let's get real, brothers and sisters. We might be swimming against the current, but the current is carrying along all of these people, and they're happy. That the hope, our hope the gospel is our hope, and it's the only hope for the world. But we are free. We have joy in our hearts. We're free to know God and all the people whizzing past us, bobbing along, you know, with their lilos and their their blow up unicorns, whatever they're happy to lie on, they're whizzing to eternal condemnation and punishment. Eternity without God. And it's not just one or two people out there, it's the majority of the world heading to eternal eternity in hell. That's reality, that's what the Bible says. That's the second thing that struck me from the chapters we looked at uh, this week. Paul's Damascus Road experience was an amazing turnaround for him. One day he was persecuting Christians. I think you heard about that last week. The The next day, he's following Jesus. The grace that God showed Paul and has shown us is so complete, so amazing, that it turns our lives upside down. Maybe you followed Jesus for many, many years, and you can't remember what it's like. But remember, such an amazing love, such an amazing love, must impact us in the way that we live. Paul speaks fervently in two Corinthians five, fourteen to fifteen, for Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced. That one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Is it surprising that the very last thing that Jesus said was to command his followers, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son of the Holy Spirit that's Matthew 28 18 through these chapters we've read this this week and throughout Acts we see the Holy Spirit time and time again pushing and encouraging his people to move to go and as they go to testify about all that the Lord Jesus has done Paul went on repeated journeys. And and we read about that this week, didn't we? He was in so many different places and he was burdened to share with everyone the amazing news, the amazing hope that he had. During during the middle of COVID, what would we have felt like if someone had developed a 100% effective treatment and vaccine for COVID, but then they decided to keep it to themselves? rightly we would have been outraged you've got to share this with the whole world that's exactly what Paul felt Acts 13 46 to 47 says Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly we had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life we now turn to the Gentiles those that were non-Jews, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul was utterly transfixed with the truth of the gospel. He was completely grabbed with the reality that those who hadn't trusted in Jesus will be lost for eternity. He was always thinking about the next village, the next town, the next province, so many people who'd never heard of the grace of Jesus. Romans fifteen twenty says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. When I went to university a few years ago now, someone from my home church gave me a cassette tape. And that really dates me, doesn't it? But It was of a, of a musician called Keith Green. Uh, maybe some of you know of Keith Green, and maybe some of you have never heard of him. But there was one song in particular, the lyrics just grabbed me, and I want to share just a few, uh, one verse with you. It says this Jesus commands us to go. It should be the exception if we stay. It's no wonder we're moving so slow when his church refused to obey, feeling so called to stay. Now, Keith Green was. Writing in the States at a time when the church was feeling very self-satisfied with itself Now we we live in a very different context and time now. However, I think Keith has things to say to us Do you know that there are four hundred thousand cross-cultural workers, maybe we would call them missionaries Cross-cultural workers sent by the worldwide church. So not just from England but from all over the world going all over the place Out of that total, 2.7% go to people groups like the people group I went to in northern Mozambique. 2.7% go to those people that have no church and very, very few Christians. We call those people groups unreached people groups. That's 16,000 missionaries out of 400,000. Now, That's quite a small amount, and you might think the reason that so few go to those unreached people groups is because the work's already been done. Almost every people group must have already received the gospel, surely. It's devastating for me to tell you it's the opposite. There are almost 6,000 whole people groups, a bit like the English or the Welsh. uh, um, 6,000 of them that have no church, that have very, very few Christians amongst them, and almost no work, workers, almost a third of the world's people groups have no church. It's just bonkers, 2,000 years after Jesus. Now, we might re- respond to that by saying, Tim, clearly that's not very good, isn't it? But what about all the different people groups in, in our city now? have come to our country, and I would say, absolutely. It's true, look at Bristol. So many people from Somalia and different places, but how much time and effort are we putting into reaching them? How much of their language have we learned in order to share the gospel with them better? There are so many opportunities in the the UK, but the reality is the need worldwide is enormous. We need to do both. We need to work to share the gospel here but also for them in their home countries. Let me give you an example. There's a country, uh, Mark's already mentioned it, somewhere in North Africa, Rob and Ruth, that's where they, they live and work. We can't mention any more details about where they are or anything more about them because the government where they are are actively seeking to find them. It's, it's a bit cloak and dagger, spies type thing. I mean, it really is. Up to a third of all of the population might be um, informers for their secret police. It's a country between 30 to, let's say, keep it general, 50 million people, almost entirely Muslim, 99.99% Muslim. Maybe 2,000 to 10,000 brothers and sisters, believers in that country, we don't know exactly out of millions and millions of people what would Paul say in a situation like that what would he say when he hears that the church only sends one percent of its total giving worldwide to help people and it's two and a half billion people that have never heard the gospel huge numbers 99 percent of the church's giving goes on itself and goes to help uh, peoples that already have churches. Now forgive me, I'm really not meaning to make you feel guilty. That's the last thing I want you to feel. But my heart breaks. When I think of all those people, I think of the Muani who I work with for ten years. So few of them turned to Christ. So few of them ever heard the good news. Jesus commands us go and make disciples of all nations. You might disagree with what I'm going to say next, but this is what I think. It seems to me that in 21st century England, we are more interested and more inclined about helping people's physical needs. We give them education, water, sanitation, medical needs. And it's right that we love the people around us. Absolutely. But it seems that we're just not bothered about their eternal destiny. We we love them, but we're not loving them enough to be countercultural and share the gospel with them. Here's a question for you Is it because we don't believe in the gospel anymore? Have we simply accepted the lie that we should care for people physically and that's good enough? If Jesus' church doesn't stand up, show love, and share the gospel, who else is going to do it? For most of those 6,000 unreached people groups, there are very good reasons why they are unreached. Perhaps they live in in practically difficult places, so super hot, super dry, very isolated places. Maybe they live in religiously antagonistic countries like where Robin Ruth worked. Perhaps politically it's difficult. The reality is, in order to reach them, it's gonna be really really hard all the low-hanging fruit has already been plucked Christ's church needs to take up its cross and follow Jesus it will take many years of selfless work and much prayer to see a harvest but that's how Paul lived I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me prison Hardships are facing me however I consider my life worth nothing to me my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace That's Acts 20 the Lord has given us a task to complete also he's commanded us to go the question for us today is Are we going to bother to listen to what the Lord is saying to us? Or are we going to say, yes, absolutely, and then carry on with our lives as though nothing has happened? I can't change my life at the moment. I've got exams. I've got older parents. I'm starting a new job. Maybe next year I'll think about it. Next year never comes. Tomorrow never comes. All we have Is right now this moment now is the time to get down on our knees and ask for forgiveness to ask the Holy Spirit to show us afresh the wonderful truth of the gospel to to show us what he has done for us each one of us and then to ask him to help us to live for him totally completely to give up our lives for him wherever we are, whatever we're doing, and to ask him to help us to take seriously his command to go into all the world and make disciples of all people.